This podcast is brought to you by Honey Badger. Let's face it, all code will eventually have errors. When bad things happen, it's nice to know that Honey Badger has your back. Honey Badger makes you a DevOps hero by combining error monitoring, uptime monitoring, and cron monitoring into a single easy-to-use platform, saving you time and money. Enjoy the View listeners get 30% off for six months. Simply mention Enjoy the View when signing up and they'll apply the discount to your account. No credit card required. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Enjoy the View. I'm Chris, and today on our panel, we have Tessa. Hello. Ari Clark. Hi. Ben Hong. Hi, hi, hi. Guest panelist, Sam Brandt. Hello. And another guest panelist, Natalia Tepluhina. Hey. So, Sam, would you like to introduce yourself first? Just give a little bit of a, a background on yourself, like what you do and, and what you're excited to talk about today. My name is Sam Brandt. My pronouns are they, them. I'm a technical writer. Right now I'm working for Haven Life. I've been a technical writer for about eight years. I don't know how time works anymore. Are we still tracking time in the pandemic? Sure. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I've written a lot of documentation for companies around big data analytics and business analytics, but currently working at a life insurance company doing internal docs. And I'm excited to talk about good documentation, something I'm really passionate about. Awesome. And Natalia, we've had you on the podcast before, or maybe not this iteration of the podcast, but either way, could you introduce yourself for people who might not be familiar? So my name is Natalia Tupluhina. You just can just call me Natalia. That's it. Okay. Sounds good. And as we are on the View podcast, View community mostly knows me as a Vue.js core team member, currently working on View documentation. Also, I work as a staff front-end engineer for GitLab, where I'm kind of writing a bit of documentation for developers as well. And I'm happy to share my knowledge about this. Great. And so the big topic we have today is like writing technical documentation and specifically like writing documentation for, for Vue as well. And, you know, I think we, we all have some experience like being in the Vue community, either like writing documentation or like having experience reading some of the documentation. We've all had some positive experiences and some negative experiences. Uh, and so we'll be able to, to get through that actually. Like one of the, I think in my first interactions with Natalia, she was complaining about like different things in the docs and saying like, this isn't right. Like this, it would be better this way, wouldn't it? And be like, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think it would be. He's like, why isn't it that way? I didn't think of it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I mean, it, it made a lot of sense to, to, to bring her onto the team <laughs> eventually because she just like had so many ideas on, on how the, the docs could be better, most of which I agreed with. <laughs> so there are a lot of different, a lot of different kinds of documentation. And I, I don't know if we want to go like, too much into that right at the beginning. But at the very start, do we want to talk about like how for the people who write documentation here, which is at least like Sam, Natalia, Ben, myself, like how did you get into that? How did you feel drawn to it? And like, why do it? Isn't that like kind of the, the crap job that no one wants that, that you do at the end after, you know, after you've designed the library and everything? Only it's my like entire testing, career, right? man. 
Sam, do you want to you want to start? Sure. I would say that how I got into technical documentation is that I was working at Best Buy. I didn't know anything about technology until I started working there, and I had to learn how to explain technical concepts to non-technical people. And from there, I just sort of turned it into a career. I went back to school so that I could learn more about how to do it and made it my entire career. I don't think documentation is just the crap job that everyone has to do at the end. Yeah, I just I don't agree either. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think documentation is important because it not only can like make developing or using a tool more efficient, right? Because I'm sure that we've all been at companies where not enough is written down. And whenever you have to fix a problem, you have to go to someone's desk or Slack them and say, hey, how did you solve this the last time? And then that person becomes the person who is always bothered by that, yeah. by everyone who onboards. Hey, how do you solve this problem? You know, better documentation creates better efficiency for onboarding. It creates better, honestly, it saves money. You know, having good documentation means less service calls, less time on service calls. Having documentation that accurately reflects what users encounter ultimately, you know, eliminates frustration. The big problem is that because in a lot of cases it isn't updated or it isn't, you know, given its due, you know, bad documentation can be really frustrating. And so people end up skipping the documentation. And so, you know, people think, you know, why document or, or what is good documentation? Isn't all documentation out of date? And, and, you know, what are people, but people, you know, do focus on, on, you know, what makes a document good. I could go on forever about that. So maybe I should let someone Oh, we, we will. We definitely will. <laughs> we definitely will. Great. Thanks. That, that's, a, that's a great intro. Uh, what about you, Natalia? For a long time, I've been just a developer, not touching any kind of documentation. And I think my first experience with something documentation related was a free workshop docs authored for Vuevixens. And this is not exactly documentation, but it's instruction and guide for newbies. And I enjoyed it a lot. I was writing it like with a real passion. And I had so much fun seeing how people use this, even outside of workshop. They just read in this and learn something. And it led me initially to the view documentation. And there was a moment when I started complaining to Chris. And it was mostly about view CLI docs, by the way, not core docs, because view CLI <laughs> docs were kind of crappy at the moment, especially on plugin side. And I started fixing these docs. And oh my God, this was really harsh. I remember my first guide was long guide authored on Vue CLI plugins. And I sent it over to Chris. And I was hoping for like some appreciation and approval. And the first- well, I did appreciate it. I, I, I said thank you a bunch of times and <laughs> it told me a lot of things I liked. First question, from, first question from Chris was, do you want me to focus on everything or only on things that are worse than they were before? And I was like, oh, <laughs> oh my God, Chris. Chris, that's brutal. I, I don't think that's brutal. I think that's, uh, I, I mean, Natalia is a very frank person. I, I, I mean, I, I can be very frank sometimes, but I, I think I did it in a kind way. I don't know. Did you feel like it was in a brutal way, Natalia? 
So for me, it wasn't brutal way, but I was like, my initial reaction was, oh crap. I think I will just rewrite it from scratch. And eventually I did <laughs> with Chris's help. But in the process, it was so much fun. And I learned so much from Chris in terms of how to write good documentation, what is some points you should focus on, that I started doing this more and more for Docs, and eventually at GitLab as well, because uh, GitLab usually introduces itself as documentation-first company. We document everything, not only for the customers and users. We document everything for our developers and staff, like for everyone, and the handbook is open. So it's like a huge document about all the GitLab's processes available just on the internet. And development guidelines are important for there as well. So I use my knowledge that I gained from Chris and your team to also write a good development documentation there. Yeah. And I also want to say, like, if it was like beyond help or if it, there wasn't already like a really good start there, then I probably would have just said like, okay, thanks. We'll take it from here. <laughs> but like, Not I mean, self. I mean, you, you, you're, I mean, you, you're someone that like I, I wanted to invest in because like you are you are already like doing a lot, and there was there was a lot that that I did really like, and and you had a lot of really great ideas. Thank you. I'm really happy you did. If for those who don't know, Chris is a great person to go to if you truly want constructive criticism because. He will be very honest, but in a very constructive way. <laughs> but yeah, he will not sugarcoat you. Yes, yeah. but no. That's, if you just want someone to tell you what you want to hear, Chris is not that person. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess if, if after a talk you, you you want someone to just say like, "Oh yeah, great talk," not him. You want them to say, "We'll take it's it probably, from probably here." Probably not the person. <laughs> no, but I, I only I don't I don't give I don't give people feedback that they don't request. So yeah. you know what if. Technically, uh, technically, excuse me. Go ahead, go ahead. Uh -oh. Somebody slid into my DMs to give me unsolicited feedback on my talk, but it was excellent. I'm really, I'm really glad that I also got to experience Chris's feedback. It was really good. And it was the first time I'd gotten constructive feedback about like technical work in my entire career. And I was really moved. I learned a lot from it. Oh, but was that for, for something where I was like uh, a chair of the, that track or something like that? Oh, maybe. I didn't realize that was a bonus of being in the Chris track. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, if I'm, <laughs> if I'm, if I'm chairing a, a track of a conference or something, I, I like to give everybody, everybody feedback. Because, I mean, these are, these are people I, I want to invest in and like, help continue to improve. And I seek feedback for every talk that I give to. You know, I, I, I'm not speaking from a, a place where I just like know everything. <laughs> Giving good feedback is a very hard skill that it takes you know, a lot of practice to learn. So it's awesome. Yeah, I'll add to it in that he definitely sets the bar as far as like just the level of detail he'll observe and just giving you opportunity, like telling, like giving you suggestions on ways you can improve. It's not just like he's like, oh, that was terrible and he just moves on. Like he actually talks not just, it's not just a subjective thing. He really does help to go into what can be improved rather than just sort of like judgmental overtone, which is um, one of the things that makes Chris's feedback so useful to people. I, I try to also I, always include a lot of things that I love about, yes. like, uh, about whatever yes. it is that, that people are doing too, because I, I think that's just as important, like knowing what like worked really well and people should keep doing. And yeah, being specific to, I about that. fix it. <laughs> what works well is an underrated skill. Yeah, and I, I have told people before, just like, listen, I don't think I don't think you should do that again. 
I don't think this is for you. <laughs> or, that, or, or that topic, you know, like, I don't think that's a good topic for you. Like that, you know, I would, I would try something else. But that's, it's pretty rare. And it's, it's not because like the, the talk was so bad, but just because like, I don't think it's a good fit. Like it's not something they're passionate about. You know, like sometimes people want to pick a talk that they think will be like really popular, but it's not really something that they, they care deeply about. And then you can tell that as an audience member. And that's not something you can fix. You know, it's not something I can say like, oh, become more passionate. It's starting to sound like an anime series on giving tech talks. Like it's all about heart, you know? Oh my gosh, I could totally <laughs> see hearts. the heart. <laughs> okay. So Ben, I don't think we, we heard from you. Like what got you into technical documentation and like other resources for developers? Because, you know, it's not just writing. You know, I know you yeah. do videos and stuff like that too. So my origin story, actually, I don't, I don't think any of you know this story, actually starts back in undergraduate when I was taking an entrepreneurship class. And so we were supposed to give a pitch to, to the class about what our company would be. And so I, I'm not joking, the startup that I was pitching was called iManual, like lowercase i, capital M, iManual. And the whole idea was like, it was a company that would be consulting on how to write better instruction manuals because I was so frustrated with products that just had these terrible getting started guides or whether it was onboarding. So for some reason that idea got selected by the class. So I spent a whole semester working on this concept of a, basically a documentation consulting company. Granted that, that fizzled, that didn't go anywhere, but that is uh, sort of where I got started as far as just realizing that a lot of the things that existed in the world just lacked the sort of empathy of what people were walking into when starting with something. And certainly that has carried over into my work in uh, technology as well. How about yourself, Chris? Why, thank you, Ben, for that excellent segue. It's always nicer when someone else can say it rather than like, oh, and Chris, what do you, what do you think? And then it's like, oh, thank you, Chris, for the great question, Chris. So, yeah, for, for me, I, I got started, I mean, r- really as a, an educator. Like I was a teacher before I started doing any development, you know, mostly teaching like human languages, like German, Spanish, and, and also teaching music. I, I taught guitar lessons. That was one of my first jobs. <laughs> and, you know, and I, I actually like, got a degree in secondary education. That was my major in college. And I taught some high school and taught a bunch of like, after-school programs and did a, I've done a bunch of different education stuff that I, I look back fondly on. And when I started getting into to tech, sort of figuring out how to, how to figure stuff out was something that was always on my mind. And, you know, I, I sought out resources that would be helpful and, you know, found some and, and had some complaints and over time started making more of my own software and creating resources for that. And when I was really getting into Vue, what happened is I, I was just kind of like asking questions and I started answering questions and issues and I was eventually like invited to the team by Evan when he was creating that, that initial core team. And I wasn't invited to be the person that, who is in charge of documentation or anything like that, but we were making view two and it needed new documentation. And so I just created like a, a big checklist basically of all the things that we needed to do with ways that we could like split out the work. And I started writing some of that, some of that documentation and, you know, put it up for anybody else who wanted to grab it too. And people were really liking the documentation that I was creating. 
And so people just kind of stopped signing up to write new documentation because they thought that I would do it better. <laughs> and so I ended up writing like 95% of the, the, the core docs review too. You know, as, as we were developing the library, which worked out really, really well, because I'd, I'd write documentation for an experimental, like a feature that wasn't like set in stone yet. And we'd realize some parts of it, my gosh, this is really hard to explain. But if we made this change, it'd be a lot easier to explain and make a lot more sense uh, and it'd be more intuitive. And I only realized that through the exercise of actually trying to explain it, you know, and then we'd make that change to the, the actual library before it was out. And so we, we did sort of documentation development uh, or documentation driven development without really realizing it. And then that became something that we, we practiced more frequently for view and big official view projects, which I, I think contributes a lot to how nice the docs are and it makes the documentation documentator's job a lot easier when the library is really made to be documented well. You don't have to try to figure out how to explain stuff and how to have it make sense after the fact. That's rare. Definitely. Oh yeah. Uh, big time. Yeah. Great to, to find that kind of thing. Usually it's more like, this is really hard to explain in the documentation. Oh, well, it's already out. Just explain it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So documenting early, I think is like one of the biggest tips that I can give people who not only want to create great documentation, but create great libraries. Like if you're struggling to explain it, it's not going to be like, it's going to be a struggle to use and it's going to be hard to keep in people's heads. Like if you're having trouble, even keeping everything in your head as you're trying to, trying to explain it and trying to figure out how to like order things, you know, in a way that it, that it makes sense and has a logical progression. So one of the things that we talked about is like some of the things that we, we really like about documentation. Some of the things that we don't like personally, I'd rather start with stuff that we don't like because that's, that's kind of fun. <laughs> and if possible, you know, just so we're not like crapping on other people's work as much, what's one of the biggest mistakes that you've made that you've regretted or some things that you used to do that you've since learned like, oh gosh, like this is much better doing it this other way. And anyone can jump in who'd like to start. I think I can start with where I was really wrong. I was using like these long, complicated sentences that took like the whole paragraph and like with multiple commas trying to expand my thought and it was completely unreadable. I just need to like read it one more time and a few more times after this and you still have no idea what I wanted to say there. So then you moved from that to like shorter sentences and making your points like more concise? Definitely. And right now I'm rather blamed for too short and fragmented sentences by Sarah. So someday you'll get it just right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think sometimes we need to like experience the other extreme before we come to a synthesis. But I think too, too short is better. Like too short and fragmented is better than like really long. And like, I, gosh, even when I write really long sentences, I have trouble following them myself. Who else has some stuff that they, that they used to do in technical documentation writing that they've, they've since changed their mind on, seen the light. Well, I can tell you about a mistake I made that I think is bad and hilarious. Um, Sounds great. I was the only technical writer at a company. So I was doing 
all of the documentation and it didn't often leave me a lot of time for good, strong editing. Editing is a super important part of great documentation. And luckily, this piece of documentation was not super visible, but I found that I had left a bunch of filler in the documentation. So where you like put a couple parentheses and you're like, I don't know, it does something, fill this in later. You know, luckily there were no swear words. Sometimes my documentation filler full of swear words when I can't get something right. It'll just be, can I swear on this podcast? We can do Battlestar Galactica swearing. <laughs> or the good place. Or the good place. Oh, yeah, yeah. Either, either is acceptable. Something like this forking topic is so forking messed up. I don't forking know what I'm doing here. So I had left a bunch of filler just nonsense in, in a topic that had been live for months. And luckily no one had noticed it. I was the first one to find it, but I was so embarrassed for myself. And so even when I'm lacking in time, I try to do my best to go through and do some editing. Not only do you get sort of your best condensed, concise phrasing in editing, but you know, I've over the years learned some tips for better editing. Like if you're doing editing for just like spelling and grammar pass, go through the document backwards, like read each sentence, but sort of go through the document backwards. So you ignore the content and you're just focused on like what each word looks like or where the punctuation in a sentence is. Editing. It's the best. You get the best documentation from giving multiple passes or getting multiple eyes on a document. Yeah, 100%. I I usually write a pretty bad first draft, honestly, still today. And it's not until, you know, maybe the third or maybe even like the 20th, like revision that I start getting to something that I really like. Yeah, that's, that's just the, the, the way it, it seems to work for me and, and, and for a lot of people. So if you write the first draft and it's terrible, that's a great place to start. You need to start with something written. Uh, and like one of the for people who are writing like novels too, or want to get into that, there's a sort of a collective called NaNoWriMo where they just like try to write a whole novel in a month. And one of the, one of the tips people give you is just like write every day, just like keep writing, just write something. And I think that's a great tip just to get something out there because you just have to accept that it's not going to be optimal. It's not going to be optimal coming out of your, your brain like onto the screen the first time. Uh, a lot of times you just need to dump things out and then you can start rearranging and rephrasing and stuff like that. It's also the best way to get reviews. If you are not a developer like myself and you need a subject matter expert to review or to give you information about a subject, it is better to come in with a bad draft than with nothing because it'll help not only start the conversation, but often, you know, will give you uh, some people just want to tell you where you're wrong. And, you know, I'm, I'm professionally used to just being wrong on paper so that other people will tell me the things I need. Yeah. I mean, and it's a great way to like confirm your understanding uh, is correct at the beginning too, because you could write a first draft by yourself, like show it to no one and then get to the 20th draft that you finally feel comfortable with. And then you show it to someone and they say like, well, that's actually not really how it works. <laughs> you've, you've misunderstood something pretty fundamental and then you have to throw it all away, which honestly has happened to me before, you know, when I, when I don't show stuff to people early enough. Yeah. That's why I think the most important knowledge Chris shared with me is like, ask dumb questions. 
don't be afraid of dumb questions. Even yeah. if you are a developer, even if you are working with this code, sometimes you don't understand something. And trust me, it's really hard even within your core team just to like openly go to some channel and say, hey, I don't understand a thing because you believe like everyone understands this perfectly and you're just being dumb with this question. And sometimes, sometimes you're maybe misunderstanding. Sometimes you drop a question and like five more people just agree with you. Like, hey, yeah, I don't understand it as well. Can we have, have an explanation on this? And without answers on these dumb questions, you cannot go anywhere. You need to understand the topic when you're writing on it. And like writing documentation is a great place to be as a developer because it gives you the excuse to ask a bunch of dumb questions and other people have to answer you because you are doing something that they don't want to do <laughs> for them. You're like helping them out. It's also, their job. It's they a, have to help you. It's a perfect way to find bugs as well. Sometimes mm -hmm. you go there with a dumb question like, this is not working. And you're assuming you're wrong. But yeah. in fact, sometimes the tool is wrong. The framework is wrong. Yeah. The library has a bug. And you, mm -hmm. I've discovered like so many just writing documentation, things that should just work, but they didn't. Yeah, same here. That's, that's another great benefit of documentation-driven development. And a, a lot of times too, like the, the question, I mean, speaking of dumb questions, I, I feel like I want to give some examples. There are some times where like there's a new feature that people are proposing and we talk about it for a while and like it sounds good to me. And then I realize like, I don't actually know when I would use this, what is the use case? And why would we use this over this other feature that seems like it seems like we can already do kind of the same thing? Like, why, why do we, why does this feature exist? And that seems like a, a pretty fundamental question. Like if I'm, you know, if, if I'm like part of the core team, like I should know this kind of stuff. But sometimes like you talk to everybody else and they're just like, I don't know, actually, I don't know. And then we realize, oh, I guess we don't really need that feature. It just like was a cool idea to allow you to do something else. But really, we need to like document this other feature better or like this use, this other use case for this other feature, you know, that already exists, you know. And so you, like you, you end up slimming down the API and making it so that there's less stuff to learn, which is great. It's easier to learn everything when there's less of it. That's a, a little tip I've found out. What about you, Ben? You have any regrets, any mistakes that you've made? I will say, I think as far as document, like so, similar to how we have code smells when we feel like something's wrong, I have come to become very sensitive now whenever I write anything, when I use the word simply or just easily, like they're almost immediate like doc smells for either one, you're assuming that everyone already know, has this presumptive knowledge, which is just you never want to, basically never want to do. And two, a lot of times the sentence doesn't even need it. Like you're trying to communicate, you know, a lot of times the intention is to say, this is not hard, but it often comes off more negatively, I found. And oftentimes the sentence doesn't even need the adjective. Like if you just take it out, it, it actually just fine. Like you don't, you don't need to do much more work than that. But I think that's one of the things I've learned um, over the years as I've worked with docs. And if you tell people that something is really easy and it's not for them in that moment, like on that day while they're learning it, and they just feel stupid. Like, that's, that's not helpful. And it's going to be even harder. No, but I mean, I, either way, like, even if they don't get mad at me, like, I don't want them to feel stupid. Or what's worse is if you tell them that, oh, you just run this command, except the library has a bug, and then it's not just the command, and then you, oh. Yeah. Oh. And everything, everything seems easy 
and simple. Like once you already know how to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're, you're as the person writing the documentation, like you're not in the position to say like whether it's easy or simple or whether you just have to do this. Yeah. Uh, Ari, Tessa, what sort of pet peeves do you have when it comes to encountering documentation or in times that you've written some? Well, I encountered in some documentation I was reading this week where it said, that's why we always do this in our examples, but it didn't really always do that in the examples, which was really confusing, (laughs) which by the way, it was a Cypress doc. (laughs) (laughs) I can help fix that. (laughs) But yeah, um, consistency in like examples and things like that, when it's inconsistent or it's saying one thing, but kind of showing another that just like, I have a really hard time moving past that. Even if like, I understand what they're trying to get at. Like, I just get so mad that like, I keep going back to, I'm like, why would they say that? (sighs) Yeah. I think for me, simply and just are probably my biggest pet peeves. Like we talked a couple episodes ago about how different niche communities will have their different types of vocabulary. And that's definitely some of the, some of the words that really bother me in the tech community, but also like sometimes it feels like docs are written in a way where they're just writing the code again, but they like copied and pasted it a second place. So like a long time ago, I was taught how to use one middleware package, but the documentation basically just felt like they copied and pasted their code into the docs. And they were like, this is the API and it's like self-evident. So just look at look at this and you'll understand it. So I was like, why even have docs? And there was another middleware package that we didn't learn, but like their docs were much nicer. And so I ended up going with that one just because I could understand what was going on, even though it was completely new to me. And a couple of other instances that I feel like I don't run into as often, but that really throw me are when the docs contain something that the package doesn't. So for example, for a while, there's, there's an ESLint plugin. Not sure if it's still the case that documented a lot of rules that did not yet make it into the plugin. And that really (laughs) was extremely frustrating to try and debug. Fix it, Ben. (laughs) Just kidding. And similarly, there was another one where the package was getting updated really rapidly. And I didn't realize that like I couldn't use some of the functions in the docs because I wasn't using the right version because it had just been updated literally, I think, the day before because it didn't have the version where the feature was introduced. Like, I just didn't know until I thought, wait, you know, two days later, maybe I'm just using the wrong version of the package. Could that be possible? Like, would it be that fast? And it it was, so. Yeah, speaking to that, I think one of the things I love that you all did, Chris, for the new vSlot syntax was to say it was 2.6 and above. I imagine, I I think that saved me and I imagine a lot of people when it came like this news was introduced in this minor version. I love it when docs do that. Yeah, we, we did a, a run through at one point and just like made all of that like really consistent where we, we added little messages where, where things were newer, not in view two from the very beginning. And, and like we, we had little messages in different places, but we were like communicating that in different ways and sometimes in like big note that you could clearly see and sometimes not. And so we just made it way more consistent I so that it, it'd be a lot that. easier to see that. Yeah. Not knowing what version something was introduced in can really get confusing if your customer comes to you and they have like X version 
and you're like, wait, did we have that feature in there? Was that event there yet? Oh no, I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember these things. <laughs> so yeah, because I saw it used like all over the view docs, I always know whenever I'm adding to documentation, I add the version number in which that thing was introduced. I feel like similarly, one place where that feature I do find confusing, which maybe I just find it confusing because I still don't really get slots, but I've never worked at a place where we could use like the, the newer syntax of slots. And so every time I go to the docs and it's like, oh, if you're using this other syntax, you need to click on this link and it scrolls somewhere else and it's like not quite the right spot. I'm almost like, oh, I wish it was just in line right under, but with like a clear version, subversion demarcation or something. So I didn't have to go to a different page every single time but I really like that it's very clear which version has what. This is where style guides can be really useful. One of the reasons that I usually say that people should either hire technical writers or consult with technical writers is because there are a lot of tools and things that are common use that people who just pick up documentation maybe don't think that they like need or use or don't even you know know exist is like a style guide in your documentation can help you to standardize and bring about all that consistency. So most style guides will say something like don't use just or simply or you know words that indicate ease. Style guides might have a consistent way of handling versions, certain words. So I never use allow unless something is giving permission. I always use enable because a thing is enabling you to do something. Also, if you're documenting with multiple people, make sure that all of your documentation uses similar language and styling for consistency across multiple writers, which when you have a lot of people contributing can really be a benefit. And we'll cut down, I think, on some of those pet peeves. Yeah, and, and Vue has a, like we eventually developed a, a style guide for, for the Vue docs that we, we keep on the, the, the docs repo. And N Natalia, what would you say like is, like some of your favorite like rules from, from that style guide, from, from our internal one? My super favorite one, like number one by all means, is accept one concept at a time. It was just so helpful for everything, for documentation, development guidelines, talks, articles, whatever. Just explain one concept at a time and don't add cognitive law to your readers. Yeah, which like, sounds, sounds simple, but it can be hard to do. Like I still catch myself sometimes like wanting to explain like three different related things at a time and then have to really step back and think, okay, well, how could I, how could I actually separate these things out? You know, cause you, you think about something like, you know, attributes that you're, you know, adding to a view component. And then you think of, you know, V bind and V model and, you know, events, event listeners that you can add. And it, you know, you're, you find yourself just kind of like listing stuff out and it, it could be really confusing. And then you realize like, okay, I can't really just like talk about like attributes in general as a thing. Like I, I really have to break things down a little bit more and maybe I'll just talk about like regular attributes first and then, you know, talk about bindings, you know, and that, that might be the, the, the simplest way. Like my favorite tricks for figuring out what order to, to do things in is to start with whatever gives people the most power first for the least amount of effort. And then ask that question again for the next concept. Because then people, as they're reading, will, will keep on feeling like really powerful. Like everything that they learn is like, whoa, this opens up so many new possibilities. You know, even though you're just introducing one small thing, 
you know, now they know how to do all these other things that they're, they're already imagining. And if you stick with, you know, relatively realistic use cases, you know, that people can actually imagine like building this feature themselves, then that helps them already envision like how they'll use this in their app and like what kind of apps they could build with these features. What, what new options it opens up. By power, do you mean like the things that they're likely to use most often? Honestly, I, I do it for like a, I do it kind of like a, with like a gut feeling to start with, with whatever just like feels like it opens the most exciting possibilities. And then I, I do user testing with people to see if like that actually helps them feel powerful. And if they are actually imagining things that they could do with this. And if it feels like it's opening up a lot of possibilities, you know, I, I so I, I kind of just generally think about what feels powerful, what, what feels exciting, like you could build the, the, the most kinds of features. So, so for example, vBind opens up a lot more possibilities than just vModel, you know, in, in Vue. And so that's something that we, we teach earlier. That makes sense. I guess, like, how do you, is it, is it really just the user testing stage where that comes in? Or how do you put yourself in the, the user's shoes? Because, like, for example, I'm imagining, like, if I was doing a video game tutorial, right, usually you start with how you walk and then run and then jump before you get into the nitty gritty, right? But if I was making the video game, I might think, like, well, casting a free spell is, like, the coolest thing you can do. And that's really powerful. So I want to do that right away. Well, I mean, that, like, that's, it's kind of a different, kind of, it's kind of a different case because okay. you're teaching people how to build something that then like makes users feel powerful. So it's like another level of separation, you know, rather than if you're teaching someone how to build a video game, then like it's, it's a little bit different, but yeah, if you're teaching people to play, teaching people how to move, like if they can't move to the enemies, like it is actually more powerful because they could shoot all day. And if they can't <laughs> choose the direction that they're shooting, then like they can't do anything. You know, with just moving, you can at least like find your enemies and you can run away. Like that opens up so many more possibilities, actually. It makes you feel like really powerful in control of your environment. Like moving is really the, the most powerful thing. But funny right. enough, Tessa, to your like video game analogy, I do think that's why, at least in the video games I've played, they try to actually make the first couple skills you acquire early on like super like, whoa, like this is cool. And then like the middle ground is a little bit more grindy, like, Oh, that's like an okay skill that I got, but like the first ones are usually like very like, whoa. Let's face it, your code is going to have errors. Even code written by an amazing developer such as yourself. When bad things happen, it's nice to know that Honey Badger has your back. Honey Badger makes you a DevOps hero by combining error monitoring, uptime monitoring, and cron monitoring into a single easy to use platform, saving you time and cash. HoneyBadger monitors and sends error alerts in real time with all of the context needed to see what's causing the error and where it's hiding in your code so you can quickly fix it and get on with your day. The included uptime and cron monitoring also lets you know when your external services are having issues or your background jobs go AWOL or silently fail. Go to HoneyBadger.io and discover how Star, Josh, and Ben created a 100% bootstrap monitoring solution. Why is this important? Self-funding means they only answer to you, the developer, rather than a venture capital overlord. Enjoy the View listeners get 30% off for six months. Simply mention Enjoy the View when signing up and they'll apply the discount to your account. No credit card required. Chris, you brought up use cases. Mm -hmm. And that made me realize that one of my greatest pet peeves and 
one of, to me, the greatest hallmarks of bad technical documentation is overly generic use cases <laughs> where like, I can't make the connection as to how this would apply to a real world feature. So how do you, how do you strike that balance between, cause I feel like overly specific could also, you know, not lead people to not realize other possibilities for the feature. So how do you land on the right amount of detail in a use case example? Yeah. And you want to keep it not super complex so that it's hard to understand and introduce like by accident, a bunch of other concepts in that example that maybe aren't related and aren't prior knowledge that can be assumed. Yeah. That, that can be, that can be really difficult, but like a, a simple example, like if you're, if you're teaching people how to manage state with like a, a button counter, if you just teach people how to like click on a button and have it like increment one, that's kind of boring. But if you make it like, if you make it a like button, then suddenly it's more exciting. And it's something that you can imagine like actually building. Like a lot of websites have like buttons or thumbs up buttons and stuff like that. And like every time you click on it, it gives you another like. It's like, oh yeah, Medium does that. Like so some of it, you know, some of them, it's just, you know, it's not binary. You know, you can actually add a bunch of different likes. And, and that gets people imagining like what they can actually use this for. Whereas if you just have like a button that you click on and then it, the button shows a number and the number goes up every time, that feature doesn't exist anywhere. So people aren't immediately making that leap. Like, oh, I could use this for like, for likes and stuff like that. You know, it, it seems a little bit too abstract. And I really dislike variables like foo and bar x, y. If you ever see any examples with those kinds of names, I did not write them. Oh yeah, I was refactoring the composition API RFC to docs because we used it as a bottleneck. I replaced so many foo and bars that <laughs> like every single example was foo bar, every yep. single. And you know that in our docs team, we have four people right now. Yeah. It's Ben, me, Sarah Tresner, and Anfan. And this is just a fun fact about doc writers. So An is actually, he has a collection of succulents and two favorite his succulents, <laughs> a name of foo and bar. <laughs> I did not know that. I didn't know that either, actually. I've worked with An for years. <laughs> Sam, yeah, how do you... Yeah, bar are the worst for me. I, like, I'm like, I don't... What? Especially when it's like, okay, the argument, foo, and then it returns bar. And I'm like, wait, what? What just happened? <laughs> yeah, and if, if, you're, if you're teaching, like, if you're teaching someone something, you're basically storytelling. Like, in a guide, like, you're, you're storytelling. And so just like in a story... If you tell, if you tell people, like if someone's telling you a dream and dreams are notoriously boring, like other people's dreams, and it's like, man, I was at this like place and there were like people and we were doing something. I don't know what. And then we were in this other place. Like <laughs> no one's interested in this story. <laughs> That is a great analogy for FUBAR. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I've had a lot of dreams where I've been at a conference and Ben was the MC, but then he had to disappear suddenly all of a sudden and I was left holding the mic and I was like, I don't know how to MC. And then I'd wake up because I was so stressed out. <laughs> See, that's a better story because it's specific. Because there's like a specific activity, specific people involved, like a specific like sequence of events that happens. We can that like, tells a story and has pacing. Yeah, I can imagine it. 
I, I do have nightmares about emceeing actually, <laughs> like missing my cue. Cool. So, so just other, like in a story, you want to be specific. Yes, I agree. But I think the other side of that coin is that if you have pieces that are reliant on other pieces, if people are accessing your documentation not to walk through it from end to end or to learn a whole concept, but they're coming to it as a reference, it can create problems for users who are just point accessing documentation. Like, I don't know about how all of you use documentation, but I am my worst use case. I am the worst documentation user. It frustrates my husband to no end that whenever I get a new object, I immediately throw out the manual because I write those for a living. I only access documentation when I absolutely need it. I will click and butts around and, you know, get frustrated and try to figure it out before I ever turn to the documentation. So often when I write, I'm writing with users in mind who are like me, but also users in mind who are avid. I've worked with technical writers who avidly read every manual cover to cover, which sounds awful to me, but sure. <laughs> and, you know, I think specificity is great, but you have to be careful about like, you know, making sure that you're, you're, you're not only covering all audiences, but covering all audiences for their different access points. Absolutely. And that's why I think for like the, the story should be as familiar to people as possible. Like with a like button, if you're showing an example with the like button, you don't need to read what was up before. You can see that this is a like button. And actually that gives you a lot more context than, than the counter. Like if you just see a button with a number on it, you don't know exactly what's going on. But if you see like three likes and you know, it looks like it's not clicked on, if you click on it, you expect the likes to go up. <laughs> And similar, like for, for blog posts, like, you know, blog posts is a, a really common concept that, that you can use and people like can see an article and with like a title and a body and they'll immediately like recognize this format and you don't need a lot of explanation to say like, oh, this is a, this is a blog post. If they jump in in the middle of the story, they can tell what's going on. Like how view is working with this. We have two separate parts in the documentation. First is guide which is a story, which is kind of a book you're following. And second is API reference that still gives you these short, crispy examples with very short explanation, and they're not connected as a story. This is just a reference. So people mm -hmm. are yeah. more experienced and just, they just want to check for syntax, for signature, for some function. They can just go to the API reference, get an example, and they will be happy about it. That was exactly what I was thinking about when she was explaining, you know, having to account for like access points. I was like, yeah, like sometimes when I'm just like, oh, well, what was the potential arguments for that one thing? I just go to the API part. <laughs> but like there, when I'm like, I remember there was this one feature, but I don't remember exactly how that fits in with the, like the whole story here. Let me go to the guide. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that relates to a couple of questions that I have with the docs, which is like, for example, the last time I read instructions thoroughly because like Sam I usually only go to instructions when I'm in trouble unless it's something that like comes with like a warning like if you use it wrong it's going to blow up or something like that I needed to get an, an ID and when I went to the office to get my ID I brought all of this stuff and they're like why did you prepare all of this stuff and I was like well it was in the instructions and they're really nice but they laughed at me and they said you're probably the only person that's read the instructions in like the last 10 years we don't do any of that anymore <laughs> So it's like, especially if you're being really specific, how do you keep docs up to date 
And then my other frequent issue is like, how do you manage the, here's like a really simple specific idea. And then like, here's an inspirational thing while still making sure the users can get there. Cause like with the drawing the owl meme, right? There's like draw the two circles and you're like, yeah, I can do that. And then they're like, draw the rest of the owl. And you're like, wow, that's like really cool and inspiring. And also now I'm too intimidated to draw the owl. And like, I haven't looked at it in a while, but for example, every time I look at the animation part of the view docs, or it's like, use the transition tag. And then here's the, this dynamic star chart. I'm like, whoa, the owl. So like, how do you guide people between that like liminal space, if that makes sense? So one of the things that I do is just list out all the concepts that are involved in this thing. Like what are all of the skills that people need to know? Even skills that like I want to assume for the entire documentation. Like if people, if I expect people to know what a variable is, like I still want to list that out to know that that is an expectation that I have. And that is something that people will have to know. And then I can, I can sort things out into like what, what I expect people to know beforehand. How can I communicate that this is what I expect people to know? So that if they can see like, oh, I don't really know JavaScript. I can go to this other resource, you know, in like the Babel guide to learn about these like advanced features, these advanced JavaScript features or something like that. If I, if I actually have that expectation and then I can like start, start sorting things out. And as I'm doing user testing, like I'll find problems. I, I, I love, love doing user testing. And I think it's, it's really underrated in documentation writing, showing it to people and like, at least in the view community, like, I never had a problem finding people who were at a variety of different levels, like look at stuff I was writing and see how they responded to it and seeing where they, where they run into issues. And then I can see, oh, I guess that there's this other concept that I didn't, that I didn't explain that I wasn't even thinking about because it was such like fundamental, like knowledge assumed in my brain. Yeah. User testing yeah. is really a blessing when you have the resources for it and when you're, you've got support to do it in your organization. Unfortunately, there are a lot of times and a lot of places that don't give it priority, especially for documentation. In those cases, if you're writing docs and you're sort of on your own to try to draw the owl, I would say a good thing that you can do is do the process yourself following your own documentation. You write the document and then you test your own document and you do exactly what you would do with user testing, which is like talk aloud the process, you know, record yourself if that's helpful to you. I hate recording myself because listening to my own voice is, I'm not, I'm probably not going to listen to this when it comes out because it'll make me cry. But, you know, I think if you are without other people to test, you can become your own tester. And to the keeping things updated is a challenge. I think everybody who writes documentation deals with the challenge of how to keep things updated because you run into a whole bunch of stuff. At some organizations, you don't have time to make sure everything is up to date because you know, you're only working on new things or you know, they don't have enough time to go back and fix their MVPs. So nobody is giving you any information about things that are updated. I, I never buy those excuses, honestly, though. Like if, if people like, oh, we're too busy like developing new things. It's like, well, the new thing isn't done until there's good documentation for it. Like no sure. one can use it if it's not documented. But no, not, not always do you have the power to go, go in and say that. You I know, guess I have the power to quit and that's what I do in those cases. <laughs> I, I've been at places where I didn't have that much latitude. And, you know, I think 
one of the great things that is now, you know, for a lot of documentation is if you can find ways to do automation is really helpful. And that's not just automation within like the documentation itself, but automation in the process, right? Or if you can find ways to force the development teams to include when something needs additional documentation or invalidates existing documentation, you know, that you automatically get notification or the company that Tessa and I were at together, there was a process in place that whenever an update was pushed, I, I basically just got an email that said this was updated in the repo, you know, you might need to check it and flag it for updated documentation. So, oh, that's you know, right. I had to write like a description of what I fixed in a way that you could understand it. I completely forgot about that. I missed that. I was so scarred by the later, <laughs> the later doc work. <laughs> I, you know, I think that, that there are ways to build the processes to help that, but it's always, I think keeping up the docs is always a challenge, you know, that everywhere has. Yeah. And speaking of automation, like something I've done in like a, a pre-commit hook sometimes for project documentation, you know, so this is documentation for other developers of that project is, you know, for, for certain things where we know, like whenever we create a new, a new thing of this kind of thing, like a, like a new service, we want documentation on it. So if there's not like also some kind of like change to this file in the documentation, at the same time as creating a new service, then that pre-commit hook should fail and say like, yo, you didn't document this. <laughs> and yeah. they'll have to write that. They'll have to at least write something bad. And then people will see who are reviewing it, oh, this is terrible documentation. Which is, it's, it's a lot e that's a lot easier to catch than no documentation. Yeah, I just wanted to add about that keeping documentation up to date. So at GitLab, we have tech writers as reviewers mostly when we write documentation. So developers document the feature and we usually document it bad, honestly. <laughs> like, like developers should do it, but at least we rewrite some description that tech writer should understand and fix after this. So you add all the screenshots, you describe the feature as well as you can as a developer. And then tech writer would review this and say, hey, this is good, this, this should be fixed. This way, tech writers are always in the loop of the latest changes. Yeah, and speaking of trying to help you know, teams make that more of a possibility, it's why I'm a big fan of trying to ensure that the docs are actually integrated into the repo. So whether you're using tools like ViewPress, basically you want it so that when you see the pull requests, if there's a missing markdown update and whatnot, like that basically is at least a red herring. So to Chris's point, you can check that like, is updates being made to the docs folder, for example? Right. Isn't, um, isn't so, a red herring like when you're looking at the wrong thing? Like it's a misleading sign? I think you used oh, that wrong. I think I did use that wrong. It's a sign. I think yes. that's what you mean, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> red flag? Is, uh, yeah. Yes, yeah, red yeah, flag. Yeah. There you go. It's a red flag. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah, red flag. Yeah, just like a red flag that, you know, something should sort of, basically, yeah, red flag that things need to be changed or updated. And as far as automation goes, to Sam's point, if you're using tools, and I swear this is not a pitch for the company I work for, but if you are using tools like Cypress, they actually can automate things like screenshots for you so that you can like automatically when you push a bill that they'll save to the right folder and it'll update. And so that's, I know screenshots are notoriously difficult for applications to keep up to date. So automating that piece can be a huge win for teams. 
And the one piece I did want to comment on for Tessa regarding like sort of figuring out the, the layers of like content when you're writing something. I like, she introduced this concept to us a few, I think a few episodes ago about like your animating thing, like the onion analogy of like you peel layers. So you, was, it, was it onions, Tessa? Was that the, am I correct? Onion skinning. Onion skinning. Right? You start with like what you, like to Chris's point, you start with like what a user starts with. You have this end result, which, which is the owl. And then you just peel it back layer by layer, one at a time. And so in animations, you might do like the middle frame. And you keep adding what's in between those until you get like sort of this cohesive animation. And I think content is a bit like that too, where like, as you start to realize like your start, your end, your middle, and you'd be like, oh, the middle and the beginning kind of lack some a proper transition. And you start to get a feel for it. And it only takes some experience. But I think using that analogy was at least helpful for me to visualize how I tend to fill the gaps of what's necessary for someone to understand like a full, to understand a concept. So one question that I have as a developer who does not write any documentation, and I feel like in my various experiences, most of the pushback against writing documentation has come from fellow developers because, you know, even commenting code, like it'll be outdated right away. Nobody checks it. Just read the source code. What are some good practical tips that I can apply to A, document more effectively and B, advocate for documentation in the company? Because to Sam's point, a lot of times you're not necessarily in charge of that power. Although I feel like, you know, maybe if most of the pushback is from developers, you have a bit more control over it versus like if the pushback is from like a, a PM or the person who holds the purse strings. So for, for me personally, one of the things that I really like to do is when you're hiring new people, instead of the typical, like they sit down with another developer and the other developer just like walks them through like everything in the application, like sort of folder by folder. and then like five minutes in, they're kind of zoned out and thinking to themselves like, okay, well, I'll take a look at this later myself <laughs> and see if I can make sense of it. And then ask questions because like, I am totally overloaded right now. Like that's, that's very rarely a useful exercise for an app that's been around for more than a few months. <laughs> and, and so instead, what I like to do is have new developers just like go through the documentation for the project and ask questions. And that way you really highlight like where the documentation is failing. And you can tell them like, you know, this is actually an exercise that we're doing in order to try to improve our documentation, which makes them more likely to ask, to feel comfortable asking this like quote unquote stupid questions because they're not the ones who are being tested. Like our documentation is what's being tested. They're already hired. <laughs> and so and this, uh, this helps us like identify where there are gaps in, in our documentation, you know, where it could be improved, where it's not really self-explanatory. And having new developers like, become familiar with it from the very start, like before they even start working on features, gets people aware of like, what's in the documentation, what's there, and, and really sets the culture of like, yeah, we, we use this stuff. Because if, if there's really just like one person who's pushing for documentation, writing it, and no one else is checking it, and therefore also not updating it, then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of like, oh, we don't really need to, like, we don't, like the docs aren't really useful because they're never up to date. So, well, they're not up to date because we assume that they're not going to be useful. <laughs> and so we never work on them. We're not really putting in any work there, but we still have like a lot of questions about some of these files. And this file, like, only Sarah can work on because she's the only one who understands it. <laughs> so. Yeah, we, 
we went even further on this. So during our onboarding process, you actually have a task checkbox to contribute to the documentation, not only to find out what is wrong, just to contribute there. Even if, like, even if it's type of fix, it's already kind of demand here. And when you have a remote company, like fully remote, documentation for developers becomes like just, it's it just mandatory. You should have it there. We have knowledge sharing as one of the company values. And you're encouraged and sometimes even enforced to put everything into documentation because this is the only way you can scale your knowledge. Otherwise, you're just a go-to point. Like, oh, I need to ask something about GraphQL. Let's ask Natalia. And other people ask me to, and then, and then, and then, and you answer the same questions for like 10 times. It's just easier to document it upfront and just send people there. If they have further questions, document answers as well. Like it's perfect for scaling the knowledge. Is that why you developed a GraphQL talk? You just were tired of people constantly asking <laughs> questions. I'll just put this out there. It'll be recorded. I'll just send people the link. Connected, yeah. I've made many videos with people that are exactly that. I, this developer wanted to stop answering that question and now there's a video for it. I think when you're at a company that there is no established, like documentation is good and we should do it. It can be hard to be the person making that case, especially if they're a company that doesn't hire technical writers or doesn't care about documentation to begin with. Like startups don't usually bring in a technical writer until way down the road, right? And if they're not already thinking about documentation, then you get a long way. You get this deep trench of missing information is that if you can bring it up to a bottom line kind of thing, right? Talk about how documentation impacts dollars for customer support, for onboarding, for, you know, client success. All that can be very, very helpful. If you can create good pieces yourself and shop them around for look how easy this was to create and look how much it's getting used and is helpful. My current, where we are, we track a lot of metrics on page views so that you can sort of show how needed certain knowledge is. Having analytics for how much a document is used or how much something is searched is great for saying like this is, is needed. So hard data, always good for documentation. And for writing documentation, which I think was your other question, Tessa, for like, I don't really write documentation, how do I get started? I think really good documentation, a lot of it is actually about information hierarchy. So yes, good writing is important. I'll never say that you know good writing isn't important to writing technical documentation, but I actually think document design, information hierarchy, chunking, you know, thinking about scannability, all of those things are really important. So chunking your knowledge into, like Natalia said, you know, single concepts or, you know, thinking about the way that you read through a page, you know, the most important information should be in the top right corner and go down to the least important information because you're going to keep a hold on that top first bit of information. So that's not how we write things like letters, right? That's not how we write essays, but it, it, it is how we write technical documentation is put. I'll speak for yourself. My letters are beautiful. <laughs> like people get hooked right away in the first few words. Yeah. 
And it's like, wow. So I think those are skills that even if you don't feel like you're a strong writer, you can be a strong information delivery system and then get someone to help you clean up the writing. Yeah. And even if you are a strong writer, like everybody needs help with editing and everybody needs help like negotiating what our shared understanding of this is like, you, you can't do that alone. That's just impossible. It, it is a pain. <laughs> Having been the only writer somewhere, it is not great. I, I'm actually a huge fan of like training developers to, to do technical documentation because like the, the skills involved are really communication skills and better communicators are better developers. Like, because the, the code itself uh, is also like a communication tool. And if you're doing documentation-driven development for your project, like that's also going to be better code. That's going to be easier, easier to maintain, easier to explain to other people so that they can work on it. Yeah, and so to Tesla's question too, regarding like, you know, if you're a developer at a company where there's nothing at all and you're starting from zero, and you know, and you're not like a technical writer by training, you know, you don't have like Chris's education background, it might be intimidating to get started. And so really, it, I mean, if you want to talk about documentation, start with just comments in your code. I think that's like the, the base, base place to start because eventually like- it's Variable names. <laughs> don't end there. Yes, yeah. don't end there, but like getting started. You know, I'm okay with variable names that are like a full sentence even. <laughs> yes, be descriptive as humanly possible. And so especially because comments can be pulled out, you know, like API docs, a lot of them are based on just comments inside of code and they just pulled out and rendered. For people. So if you just start there, as Sam, Chris, and Natalia have, have tried to emphasize a lot, like a lot of times those starting points will get people to then ask more questions. But when you have this blank page syndrome of like, well, there was nothing. So there's nothing to criticize, nothing to compliment. But even if you start with something, then it can, then you get that like sort of, you start creating that itch for people and curiosity of like, maybe this would be a little bit better. Like, oh, this didn't help me. Like, and so, you know, being brave and courageous to start that, that conversation and not being afraid of being wrong, I think is probably the most important part to getting started on your documentation journey as a developer. Even if you don't want to do it full-time, again, just something that you, some kind of comment you write will, will go a long way, I, I assure you, for anyone who's maintaining your code in the future. And I just want to reiterate a word that you said at the beginning, Ben, that I think is really the key to good documentation. That's what the word empathy. Have empathy for the person who's going to consume it. <laughs> Because it might be you. <laughs> <laughs> Always consider your audience and then take a step back and assume that your audience is missing something that you have. I feel like if I could go back in time even two weeks ago, I would also be like always assume that I have the memory of Dory from Finding Nemo because I used Next Tick and then I didn't comment <laughs> why I used Next Tick. And then Two weeks later, after a vacation, I had to explain it, and I didn't remember. But I think I think the tips of tempting people with like this uh, peek into a better documented world, and also focusing on hierarchizing information, I think are two really good takeaways. Um, can I throw a shout out in here for making your docs accessible? This is, you know, alt texting your screenshots for screen readers. This is hopefully. People are also making their apps accessible. They're, they're considering these things for everything. But, you know, it is important to also make your docs accessible. There are lots of great ways to do that. Plain language is another way to do that. You know, please keep in mind accessibility in, in documentation as well. All right. So 
does anybody have any final words before we, we start wrapping up? I, I think there's definitely more that we could talk about probably for hours. Yeah, uh, definitely need a part two, three, four, five, probably. <laughs> okay, then Natalia, for people who want to like follow you and learn more of your wisdoms, where can they find you on the internet? I have a website with a pretty intuitive name, nataliadiblukina.com. And also Twitter. So if you want to contact me, my DMs are open on Twitter. Hopefully this won't create like a huge wave of spam there. But usually I don't worry. They've been trying to get people to spam me for months. It hasn't happened yet. (laughs) So Sam, what about you? Where can uh, can we find you on the internet? You can find my website is writersamb.com. And you can find me on Instagram at mixsambrandt. That's MX Sam Brand. Got it. And for people who might be looking for technical writers, are you currently accepting new projects? I am not, but I could totally plug my very good friend who has a technical writing consulting business who contracts out amazing technical writers. Good words. Excellent. Thank you so much. So now let's move on to the picks. And Tessa, would you like to start? I see you have a lot of picks. Yes, my picks are mostly around home comforts, but then I remembered today's topic and felt I should throw in a writing pick as well. So the first pick, I have a stainless steel mocha pot, but it had like caked on grease stains and stuff. And one of my former students told me about this thing called shedazzle, which is apparently made of all natural ingredients. The smell isn't too bad and I'm very sensitive to smells. And it's like a powder that you can use to clean exactly that kind of mess and I was amazed at how well it worked so like I'm sold like it's as seen on tv like I'm 100% in on shedazzle also Dr. Tung's ionic toothbrush it's it's a toothbrush that's supposedly like the second most effective type of toothbrush and I don't really have that much confidence in my abilities to judge these things but I asked actually a friend of Sam and mine's Brendan uh, who's like really into reading studies and stuff and he also looked into it and was like this is legit and it basically uses ions to repel black off your teeth and when my battery ran out, I didn't know, but I really started to feel a difference. So I feel like that's great. Third pick, Chris, you can tell me probably if I'm saying this wrong, but Zanga hot water bottles. It's, it's just a really great quality rubber hot water bottle. And I injured my shoulder recently, so I've been getting use out of it again. And finally, my writing pick is the book on writing well by William Zinser. When I used to teach uh, writing, I thought that this book was pretty plainly written. So I liked it a lot. All right. Ari, would you like to go on with your picks? Sure. So my first pick is something I think is going to resonate with a couple people here, which is Cypress IO for end-to-end testing. You guys can't see it, but Chris is actually wearing a Cypress shirt. (laughs) (laughs) And as many of you may know, that is where Ben is currently employed. So Don't say. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I just started playing with it for the first time this week. And I have to say it is... Just watching your test being run is one of the most satisfying experiences you will ever have as as a developer. Like, it's just, I mean, it took a little time to just get through the docs to where I felt comfortable even starting to write a test. But once I got started, it it really just kind of fell into place very quickly. So I highly recommend it. Improvements are coming. Yay. I did have some issues with the docs, but I'll take that up with Ben. So I'm sure it'll be way better soon. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, left sidebar after this. Yeah, but by the time that this comes out, the docs will be perfect. Everything yes. will be fixed. No, I'm just kidding. I, I've sure. never, I, I've never seen or written perfect docs, so they, yeah, they could always they use exist. improvement. Yeah. 
Um, and my second pick is a singer, Donnie Benet. Describe his music as heavily influenced by 80s post-disco with vocals reminiscent of Lou Reed. His uh, YouTube channel is also just really interesting because uh, it's more than just his music. He also will like give tours of his studio. And he just has this <laughs> very sort of campy persona that is just fun and delightful to watch. He he looks like a <laughs> he looks like a sleazy lounge singer and he's just kind of owning that. <laughs> so it's just it's good, lighthearted, fun music. All right. Ben, would you like to go next? Yeah, sure. So as some of you who have been following might know, I've been watching a lot of Taiwanese dramas lately. And so one of the Taiwanese actors that um, I followed a bit, uh, his name is Jasper Liu. And so basically there's a TV show on Netflix that's like a like cook reality series with him and a famous Korean like singer actor, uh, Lee Sung Yi. And they see they get together and the idea is that they travel around Asia to meet their fans in places they would never have like concerts and stuff. And it's actually super cute because they basically have to like solve a bunch of puzzles and challenges in order to get clues on where the fan lives. And then they show up at the fan's house and the fan's like freaking out because they're basically these like huge stars and they're just like hanging out in the house. Like, and it's just um, so, it's just so heartwarming to see like just, even celebrities who are like, you know, you would think that they might be like really egotistical or whatever. It's just like really heartwarming. Super love it. Like the bromance between them, that buds is also super great. So together, it'll be in the show notes. And I have two more picks. So for those of you as developers, we're in the terminal a lot. And so if you haven't heard of Starship Command Prompt, it's my new favorite command prompt. And so basically it gives you all the information you could want inside your terminal. Like before you run your commands, it actually tells you like, what branch you're on, which I know a lot of them do, but this one also goes to the fact of telling your environment variables, so what node version you're on, and just, it looks so pretty, it's so great. It works with, integrates with a lot of different shells. So Chris, it integrates with Fish, you know, it integrates with Zish and Bash, and so it's, it's super, super awesome. And so Starship, uh, definitely check that out. And paired with that is, if you're looking for another coding typography just to like use on your terminal, Check out NerdFont. NerdFont contains a bunch of different ones. So I'm using FuraCode NerdFont Mono for my uh, terminal now, and it comes with like a bunch of icons. So my terminal is nice and pretty now. It's very nice. Maybe I'll include a, include a screenshot for the show notes, but super, super love this new pairing. So, All right. Natalia, would you like to go next? Yep. First is like work-related thing. So I think six days ago, VueCLI version 4.5 was released. And what is fun about this version is you can select the version of view when you're creating a project and you can easily upgrade an old project like old on view 2 project to view 3 project and this is a perfect moment to start playing with view on release candidate because previously people were concerned about oh do i need to set up a webpack myself and there were not really enthusiastic about this, but right now you can scaffold the project really fast and you can start trying it. And my second pick is their Swift Folklore album. And I would totally recommend yeah. at least trying this. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you were listening to Taylor Swift before or not, because this is not very typical album and it's really nice. So try it out. If... If you don't want to be sad, though, content <laughs> warning, like it's, it's a breakup album, basically. I don't think she broke up with Joe. I think they're still together. 
but like it is like tons of breakup songs. Yeah, but they are very nice. So Chris, would you like to present your picks? Sure, I could. Thank you for asking, Natalia. No one asks. I would also like to pick Taylor Swift's Folklore album and two particular songs on it, which are my favorite songs on the album. Exile, which is also a duet with, is it Bonivé or something like that? Or how do you mm-hmm. pronounce it? Well, it's, it's, it's beautiful. And it's from like, two, it's two different perspectives of a breakup, which spoke to me. My, my Tears Ricochet, which is another good one. It's actually the next song in the album. Those are my two favorites. My next pick is the OXO Good Grips Easy Clean Compost. It's such, it's, this is the best like compost bin that I've ever had. It's so, like it it's, keeps in smell so well. It cleans so easily. And to open it, like I can open it, like I can have like a bunch of like broken eggshells in one hand, just like open it with the, like the back of my hand and then drop those in. And it's also wide enough to just like dump a bunch of stuff from like a cutting board and stuff like that, like, like scraps from an onion or whatever. Ah, so good. And then my last pick is a G. Ganon foldable bathtub. So for people who maybe live in an apartment or a house that doesn't have a bathtub, but you still want to get your bath on sometimes, this is a foldable bathtub that you can set up in just like a few minutes that is actually, I haven't tried it out myself yet personally, but I've had other people try it out and it is more comfortable than like a normal bathtub. Are you telling me you even user test your bathtubs, Chris? Well, I user tested them. I just didn't test it myself. Users say it works. <laughs> I'm not a huge bath person, but I live with people who are bath people. And I like to make them happy. And that is my last pick. What about you, Sam? So my first pick is The City We Became by N.K. Jemison. This book has totally just blown my mind and is amazing. And the audiobook is incredibly atmospheric and I can't stop talking about it. Uh, so that's my first pick. Is that the, the collection of short stories or is that a novel? That's a novel. The okay. collection of short stories is How Long Till Black Future Month, which is also excellent. Yeah, that's on my to-read list. Uh, she's such an amazing writer and The City We Became. I had one of those moments where I was like, I am never going to write anything this amazing. I can't cope with this. It's just so good. Uh, Just such a huge fan of hers. My second pick is The Okra Project. The Okra Project is a collective that seeks to address the global crisis faced by Black trans folks by bringing healthy, home-cooked, culturally specific meals and resources to Black trans people. And they're amazing. And then... My last pick is, if you haven't seen it yet, The Old Guard on Netflix is really enjoyable. If you like action movies, if you like something that makes you want just the backstory for every character, like a million episodes, it's got a little bit of propaganda, but it's really good. And I'll watch anything with Charlize Theron in it forever. All right, excellent. And then that's it, that's everybody, I think. So thank you everyone for joining us and until next week, enjoy the view.